Dear listeners of the Female Guys Requested Podcast, Happy Wednesday! I'm your host Ting Ting from sunny Las Vegas. Today our guest is Lira Pierotti. Lira has been guiding and instructing for over half of her life. She is an AMGA rock guide and alpine guide, and has just one more exam in May of 2024 to achieve full international certification. Being a woman guide has had its challenges over the years, so Lyra has managed those additional gender risks with additional work, developing an overlapping and supportive career as a personal trainer. She passed a similarly coveted certification from the NSCA in 2017 to become a certified strength and conditioning specialist. Lyra is a senior guide with Alpine Ascent International, a staff instructor trainer with Ari, and has her own small business coaching mountain athletes called Movementen. In this episode, we talk about how Lyra stumbled into guiding after college, how her love of science and art of movement served as a compass for her to navigate through different phases of her guiding career. After the injury almost ended her guiding career and athletic life, she persevered and regained her footings and used her knowledge to help other mountain athletes. She also shared her experience serving as a board member of the AMGA and offered some insights for newer guides. I really enjoyed this conversation with Lyra and wish I could talk with her for another hour or two, and I know you'll feel the same way too. Much for come to this show and、uh, basically this、uh, podcast is try to profile you. So then I probably will ask you, and it's actually about guiding. Obviously, it's I think you guys requested. Yeah, what is your target audience? And I I looked at a bunch of、mm-hmm. um, your previous podcasts. I saw you interviewed Amy Barnes、right. who passed recently. She's、yes. amazing.、Right. Yeah, she was amazing.、Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, just I'm curious what your what your what your audience or your like goal for the podcast is. I mean, it's a good question. I'm still so I started this podcast.、Uh, in my first episode was aired March eighth, the International Women's Day of this year. Of this year. Oh, you've been busy. Cool. So so it's it's still pretty new. I mean, it's less than、yeah. a year, right? And right now. I have, I believe, Julia Niles the sixteenth. So, right now I have sixteenth on、uh, on the internet. Wow! And、uh, my、cool. goal is to publish two episodes of profile female guides a month. Cool. And then I'm doing a side branch of because we talk a lot about guiding. Originally, I just want to profile female guides because. People ask me,、um, "I'm I'm a female guide and also a bipoc, so it's not as common."、Um, mm-hmm. So, so people just ask me about how I should say how easy, but how did it feel to be always kind of one of the minority? 
Always. Yeah. Mm. And uh, in all the ways. <laughs> and, and then so I just like, ah, I don't know. And then people start to think ask about mentorship questions. And I um and I, I haven't really been mentor other newer guys until very recently, maybe this recent two years. And I just like, well, my personal uh, experience limited. So I just kind of want to ask other female guys about That's how, awesome. yeah, yeah. So just uh, not necessarily about how they were mentored or how they mentor people, but just kind of like experience sharing sometimes mm -hmm. just by sharing that, okay, we, we are here. So um, yeah, everybody is special, but we all share something in common. Yeah, that, uh, maybe latecomer will feel a little bit less intimidated. I love that. Yeah, so that yeah. was that was kind of my first goal. Amazing. Yeah, and then then since we talk a lot about guiding, and I'm also teaching. I'm a SPI provider. I teach oh, that's uh, right. SPI that's courses, and then during the SPI courses, we have to not teach in the extensive sense but talking about professionalism like permitting and insurance those things and i was just like i really don't have a lot of knowledge about those things uh, and then people the ask, ask me about uh how much does the guy get paid you know the business side is that be is that a real job? Can we really make oh, a career, yeah. career out of it? Is that oh, big, such big, good questions. <laughs> big questions, right? Yeah. So, well, I mean, I definitely right now, uh, it's my full-time job. Uh, and, and guiding is hard. I won't deny that. Uh, a lot of field days and uh, it can be really rewarding, obvious. So people is always curious about this profession. Totally. So, so there's a lot of questions related to guiding. Um, oh. Yeah. So to be honest, right now it's so new. So I'm just do it, and I can I haven't quite figured out a, like say a mission statement quite yet. It's not, it makes sense to me. It's I mean you're expressing so many of the things that I feel like turnover in my head, and to some extent are somewhat generational too mm. where there's a shift happening i think from like people are now getting into guiding whereas i feel like my generation i kind of stumbled into oh. it well may i ask like which generation you refer to which i don't know i'm 38 okay. so somewhere that's around like 40s ish so, mm -hmm. and i'm finding like the women in their 20s are like that, that's the question. Like, how did you get into guiding? And they're in their 20s looking to get into it. And I feel like I just kind of ended up in yeah, it. Yeah. So why don't you like tell me about your story? How did you stumble into guiding? Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. Should I jump Let's in? Just do it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the getting into guiding. Um, gosh. So I come from, I grew up in Vallejo in California in the city um, with a single mom, nowhere close to the mountains. And it was the 90s in the Bay. And there was actually a lot of like critical, um, I think, climbing history happening in the Bay Area around that time. Climbing gyms were starting and a lot of like 
big names like, well, this may have been earlier, but Arlene Bloom was an expedition climber. She was in the Berkeley Hills and bouldering was becoming popular. All these like Bay Area climbers going to the Sierra and then coming back and starting these climbing gyms. And so the whole climbing gym era was starting. So anyway, kind of a long way to say that planted a seed in my mind for sure as like generally a, a very athletic girl, couldn't get enough of sports, really wanted to do all the extreme things, but, you know, single mom in in a city close to the coast, not not super accessible or available. So it was in when I went to college, I got um, stayed in the UC system because it was an amazing education for a great price and worked really hard and got got enough money to, to go. And I got a mailing the summer before for what was called a wilderness orientation program. And it's through through Outback Adventures at UC San Diego. Still at the time was obsessed with being a marine biologist. Somehow that got stuck. And that was the track I, I thought I was on. I went to this wilderness orientation program. I worked all through high school. So I saved up some money. My mom helped me pay for it. And it was like, I don't know, it was under a thousand bucks or something for a week long expedition, sea kayaking or backpacking. I wanted to go sea kayaking. I was like, oh my gosh, in Baja of all places. And I was just like, well, that's a wild way to start university. So I got on that, met, of course, like amazing folks, some friends, lifelong friends, really. It was remarkable. And um, that turned out to be part of a bigger um, university recreation program. They were structured something like um, Outward Bound-ish, so, but a university based and they did a bunch of things they had. Um, they were connected to a climbing wall on campus that was like wedged into two racquetball courts, you know, classic like 90s uh, or post 90s. This was 2000s by then. Um, then they were, what else did they do? And then they mainly coordinated a lot of trips, recreation trips all throughout the year culminating in the big one in the summer, which was that wilderness orientation. But you could, as like as, as a nobody, you could just show up as, as a student, really, and get this amazing mentorship at, just as part of the club. And so I joined, joined that club. We went to, you know, every Monday meeting. It was a great community, became all of my really close friends. And then I just happened into this, this community that offered mentorship on an instructor or guide kind of a track. And the way they structured it was for the first year when you're a freshman, you were expected to get your woofer. I think that was right. Um, yeah, I think that was right. So that, which was huge, right? Like that, that is a 10 day long full-time field-based or wherever you are. Like I had to go to Santa Barbara for, for that 10 days over spring break. And it was like, that was like the big, the big deal for all of the freshman cohort that was trying to be what they called a trainee guide. Um, but there I was, you know, 18 or 19 already with a woofer, which is amazing as a guide and really helpful. And then I would have one quarter there on the quarter system. Every quarter I would be a trainee on a program. And I fell in love with rock climbing. It had been in there. I'd wanted to do it forever. And I was like, oh, my goodness. So I was getting trained and assisting, you know, the logistics and the people and the like risk management while I was developing my rock climbing skills all along the way. Um, so that was that was it. That was the the in that got me from there. Then you had to every year you became a next you, you would be a secondary guide and then a primary guide. They had a cultural element that was really a little bit 
funny and upside down. I don't know that it's the same now, but there was this culture that um, the primary guides were kind of expected to lead from behind and encourage the voices of the younger guides to be more prominent and be more like the oversight and the risk management behind the scenes, which had some, it worked in many ways. It was really interesting. I don't think it's what they do anymore, but that set up some really neat and nurturing team dynamics that I was able to learn and be mentored through. And then that just was this amazing experience through college. Still thought I wanted to be a marine biologist. Um, but gosh, that's then when I remember getting turns into more, more elaborate stories. Um, <laughs> I'll just keep going with it. That um, I had been working in Scripps Institution of Oceanography uh, in the lab there in benthic ecology. So studying bugs in the mud, basically. And getting to the end of college, I managed to study abroad twice. And for the second one, the first one was very short, went to Australia and it was amazing. And then I was either going to graduate early, but I had I had some scholarship money left. And I was like, oh, it's really strangely cheap to go to France for a year as wow. a student. So I moved to the French Alps for a year and it was technically my senior year, um, which, oh no, that was my, is that right? Yeah, it was technically my senior year. So my fourth year and learned that mountain guiding was a thing. <laughs> yeah, they have very mature <laughs> system there. They do, like a hundred year old or something, right? Um, so I was I was blown away. I was like, what? Nobody ever told me you could be a mountain guide for a living. That sounds like fun. <laughs> and happened into a community. A bunch of my friends from that time are now um, French UIAGM or IFMGA guides, which is really sweet. Um, so that lodged it in there. And I came home and I was like, I, there was no turning back. I was like, huh, so that just kind of stuck. Still thought because everything I knew to be like a successful young adult pointed towards, oh, lawyer, doctor, or in, in my case, I really liked science. So it was like, oh, you go get your PhD. And that's what you do. And so I was on that track, kind of, or thought I was, and got a mailing in my then super senior year. I went back to San Diego, worked at REI, and pieced things together, had just a few classes to wrap up, and then was just like, okay, now what? Like, I was really, I was so heartbroken to have left France. I missed it terribly. And, um, but started climbing more in the Eastern Sierra, which I really hadn't done at all. Um, I actually remember seeing a photo of the Eastern Sierra in a Patagonia store in Annecy in the French Alps and looking at it and be like, oh, this is my next new adventure. And I look at the caption and it's, it's like, um, Bishop California. <laughs> right next to home. <laughs> yeah. And I'd never been to Bishop. I grew up in California. So I started going up to Bishop a lot and then working at REI and I got an email from the listserv um, of the biology ecology uh, major that I was graduating from. And it was like, it, it was, I opened the email and I remember being so baffled. I looked at their job posting and, and I, I thought I was reading my resume and I was like, that's weird. How did that? And then I realized it was, they were looking for, they were looking for me. <laughs> Like it was just like, wasn't that I'd done this or that or these many things, but like the really bizarre specifics of like, it was like, oh my gosh, like this is my job. <laughs> and it was, um, they wanted outdoor and leadership experience. And I was like, oh, well, Outback Adventures, check. 
cool. And they wanted backpacking specifically experience, which I had been guiding backpacking. And they wanted, um, as a bonus, if you had any experience with science, specifically with invertebrates in the benthic or the like the top layer of mud, basically. And I was like, are you joking? <laughs> <laughs> so it was just really bizarre. Um, and that was through the White Mountain Research, uh, what do they call it, center at the time in Bishop, California. And I was like, ooh, <laughs> there's some connect the dots happening. So I emailed them and I was like, hey, here's my resume. Um, really like the sound of this position and like, let me, let me know if we can talk more. And the scientists contacted me right away. And like, then I think it was a, a few weeks later, I was driving up to Bishop to meet them. And my interview consisted of a day of backcountry skiing with them. And I was an okay skier at the time, but just at, literally outside their, their back door in the Eastern Sierra where they lived. So that was like, that whisked me up to, uh, it was a Sequoia Kings Canyon backcountry, you know, field biology job for all of that summer, but it was based in Bishop. And so that basically moved me to the Eastern Sierra where I spent the next several years. That fall, I was like still on the science bandwagon. I was still like, oh, this is my thing. And I was trying to think through how to how to go through continue university level of education and um, postgraduate education, but live in Bishop. And so the whole like fall, I was working for them. I managed to extend the work that I was doing a little bit and really just trying to figure out. And eventually I was, I was honest with myself. I was like, Oh, I just want to play in the mountains for a while. <laughs> like I was trying to create a master's program and I took the GREs and found an advisor that would like work with me who was based in the in the Bay Area but I wanted to be in Bishop you know and it was just like finally I was just like what am I doing uh, let me uh, give me a minute like just so I just like hit pause and met a bunch of local guides and then that is that's probably the very long answer for I think the little crucial nugget in there which was the amount of experience I had had just moving people around the mountains, not necessarily, I was doing, I was rock guiding, um, basically I was working with single pitch in, instructors, actually. We had to have someone on staff at UC San Diego because we operated in Joshua Tree. So that, that meant that AMGA was on my radar since I was like 18 or 19. I was like, oh, that's kind of a cool thing. And so I got um, some great mentorship and learned through following them, how efficient and effective and fun that level of skill made us as a group able to climb. We climbed more, we climbed, you know, just, just really easy, more easily and more, um, just more generally, I would say in a day with great systems. Um, so that was back there. So I had that exposure, that more technical rock. I had the like moving people through the mountains with backpacking. And that just kind of like rocketed me into some positions where I could assist a variety of trips for the local guide services. And then it was, that was like the, those were the big leagues, you know, that was like real, they were a bunch of companies owned by a variety of IFMGA guides in that area. And it was just like, whoop, whoa, full circle. My first full time then, which was definitely entry level, but again, like amazing progression for a guide. My first full-time summer, the following summer I was with Shasta mountain guides and tons of 
more like elusive skills of guiding. It wasn't like the the clear environment of the of rock climbing where you tie someone in, you know, and you and you have a top rope, for example, that I was accustomed to. But I was launched into the world of short yeah, roping that, on like alpine. Yeah. Uh-huh. Alpine, yes. Yeah. Exactly. So very entry level alpine guiding and just tons of mileage on a relatively simple objective with great mentorship, teams everywhere, people and resources and trainings and all those things. And that was well, the rest, I guess, is history. It just kept going from there. <laughs> so uh, then did you ever go back to the science related job? That's a great question. Kind of. Yes. You know, what I realized was in my heart was more natural history and less about being in a lab. And I love the science. I love the wonder of the natural environment. I was more specifically studying ecology. And as it goes with guiding, we are pretty vulnerable to uh, climate. To the cl And we were like four years into a drought in California. And California, very drought prone, obviously. And that knocked out all of my winter work finally in that fourth year. Like there was no snow. I, there was no ice guiding. There were no avalanche programs. Um, we, there was only skiing on like one one track in the ski area that they were blowing snow on. It was wild. And I had been thinking about writing. I really enjoyed writing. Not totally sure where that came from. Lots of writers in my family. Um, but I managed to connect with the local paper and just kept persisting and wrote these little tiny blurbs and things about like the upcoming triathlon. And I was able to get in for a super part-time position um, as a staff writer for that winter that a lot of my other work fell away. And that was remarkable. I ended up filling a niche of science writing. And so brought back, I was able to really, because of how they were staffed, I was able to come up with a lot of my own interesting feature ideas about the local environment that I was just completely in love with and write about it for the paper because it was a mountain town and people were interested in that. So it came, it came back around and that ended up serving more of, as, as we'll talk more, like so much of my guiding world has been about how to like support it in other ways. And the writing became the first, the, the first one, the first one that was like, oh, I can also do this so that I feel more secure against things like when there's, when the climate throws a card or if I'm to get injured and developed a bunch of skills working through uh, that editor that I worked with had been retired. He was an, a wired editor back in the day, moved to the mountain town to ski and got bored. And so in retirement, came back and worked for the paper and was just this like hilarious character and an incredible mentor to the craft of writing. So, yeah. So, so, yeah. so you meant that when you mentioned that supportive other support, supporting guiding, you meant say if uh, guiding were a thing then you can find mm -hmm. other, say, gig or career choices. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, support, totally. Yeah, it, um, as a younger guide, I think I found it even harder to make a wage and get access to enough work to make it 
full time. And, you know, for one of those years, basically lived out of my vehicle, as many young guides do at some point, you know, to to climb or ski a lot to build your skill and then also to cut cost. Right. Yeah. Then. Yeah, I can understand. I, I have a lot of friends who live in the back of the truck um, trying to be frugal, <laughs> right. right? Just like you say that when you just started, um, the wage is not ideal, but then you still have a lot of mileage you have to cover. Exactly. Yeah, and the education is expensive too. Yes, and especially like in the mountain guiding, you have to be in the terrain. So you spend all those times that on your own, they're not being paid. So you really have to kind of dirtbag it in a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> totally. And, mm -hmm. and okay. it, it is, no, yeah, and it is like, it, I value the immersion also. You know, I'm not, I don't want to live out of my vehicle anymore. And there was a time in my life that like, that was, that was cool. It is, it is, the mountain sports really can be a very immersive kind of a, sport you know it's it's we often think of it more as a lifestyle really than a than an athletic pursuit yeah i mean i definitely i mean i have i pay my due of like sleeping on the dirt and <laughs> but just like all the guys they probably have a different faces right so what when did you oh, consider you kind of switch maybe uh, i i don't want to say upgrade but um uh, because that's kind of <laughs> a very valuable uh face too totally um but how, what I want to ask is like, when was the maybe like defining moment that you uh, enter the next phase? And, yeah. The next phase. And oh, feel great like question. A little bit more financial. I would not say mm -hmm. security, but maybe like a little bit more <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. A little more ease anyway. Yeah, I moved, I think the big step for me was moving from California to Washington. Um, and that I realized the was just, I was learning about how guiding works in the States. And in the Eastern Sierra, it's really far. It's hours of driving from Reno or Las, or, uh, Las Vegas or um, yes. Los Angeles. It's yeah. far, right? And so it's it doesn't have this natural, um, so it's not uh, like, like on-ramp, you know? <laughs> It's not Chamonix, that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, the terrain is stunning. It's some of my favorite in the world. And the access just isn't that, isn't that. And then if, and then more than that, the access, when people arrive in Bishop to meet you for a trip, your trailhead is often at like seven or even sometimes 10,000 feet. And for clients to come for a long weekend trip, it's hard. It's not. And then the terrain is, there's not a lot of mellow alpine terrain. It's a lot of like really hard rock climbing. And so for people to be drawn, it just really narrows the, the, like the clientele potential, I think that terrain and that, that style of climbing. And it's extremely fun. And you certainly can, can fill out a schedule and guides do there. Um, but what I saw a couple parts I did, I moved over to Yosemite and worked for Yosemite Mountaineering School for a couple of summers. And I got through my rock climbing certification and that was awesome. And I loved it and like could have with the MGA or. Okay. Correct. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So got my rock certification with AMGA and, and that was really cool. And I could have like, just kind of, I could definitely see having a long functional life and career in that setting, 
but I had an inkling from my time in France that I wanted to go in more into Alpine, more into skiing. And then that goes back to what I was talking about with the, the riding and being in, in, in mammoth for one of those years that was so dry. I was also recognizing that like, oof. Why not, if I want to keep up with snow things, I'm not sure California is going to nurture me, at least in this time and what's mm. happening. So related to that, so I made the move north for my summer work, but still needed to figure out the winters. And I, I was like, oh, if, if climate change with all these, for example, the rim fire, the wildfire in Yosemite in 2012, we lost a month and a half of work, which was wild. And I was like, just kept experiencing these vulnerabilities. And I was like, well, hmm. if this, like, if all of these big climate anomalies are going to impact my work, what are other ways for me to explore and see if this training that I'm going through that's expensive, but that I like, is it going to show up and be is it a smart investment? Is it going to show up for me? So hit a pause on the expensive AMGA programs and started working the US Antarctic program, where I was joking that I was like, well, if climate change is going to impact my career. Maybe I can go work for climate scientists in Antarctica, <laughs> which was awesome. And it was using, I could see like growing old in a program like that, for sure, you know, and um, using the skill of the guide in a way that helped scientists access terrain and one of those projects was like ice climbing these these steam vents with a young scientist who she was in Christchurch but from Sri Lanka and did a lot of outreach and she um was just remarkable to work with and it felt like amazing to see my my work I would climb these ice vents and find the hole and then I would lower her into it to go collect the gases and pull her back out you know and so I was just like okay cool all right starting to bring some of the science back but you know in the things and the ways that I like to and staying active and for me seeing all of it from the story point of view um so that was probably that next chapter which was still really volatile it was like winters in the Antarctic program summers in the northwest and um mostly in between moving up to Washington um and working for a somewhat large company at that time that had a really great, um, a lot of really high-end technical work. Like and I was able to get tons of it. Like a high, what, What's that? What do you mean by high-end? Uh, high, yeah, like a, like low ratio, very technical, um, fairly stressful. <laughs> I was doing a lot of, at the time, on-siting. So like going out on these routes that I hadn't ever climbed before with clients, you know, like in the hot seat. And it's a lot of pressure, but incredible. The repetition I got with that in like, you know, big Alpine rock and glaciated routes and objectives was quite remarkable. Paid some dividends for, I think, my confidence um, and also took a toll on my stress levels. <laughs> so that was the latest, that was a significant next step i would so say so i have a couple questions for you so um so you have this science background so you say you went to antarctica for this big science project right so yeah um, do you feel that uh well when you were talking about writing that that was because you had a need to kind of venture out outside of guiding because there was no work because climate change totally. and then then the uh 
it must like science too, but also science can kind of serve us, say, a fallback, say if there's like a uh, little guiding work. Would that like did did that yeah. kind of put a ease on your mind? Just like oh, at least I have something that mm -hmm. okay, absolutely. Um, and then you mentioned that you, I mean, you if you study biology, you must like environmental science and all that, right? Mm -hmm. And then you say you mm -hmm. enjoy um doing athletic activities. So yep. yeah. um, so that's that's probably why it took you to the mountains is that right Absolutely. so how about guiding itself mm. like as a service oh yeah component right you're dealing with new yeah. clients teaching them or bring them to some objective how about that part of work mm. that oh that's a great question yeah that's like kind of gets to the soul of it the why like why does this thing persist in me if it's like clearly like I'm having to cobble things together to because it's stressful and it causes a lot of anxiety and it's a lot of financial burdens and potential for loss and injury and all these things and instabilities. And I, I definitely am not someone who thrives on instability. Um, that has a very different answer. And I think it's a family answer. Um, my mother was a violin teacher and I grew up watching her with her students and so teaching where I think a lot, where some mountain guides maybe grew up skiing and climbing, especially skiing, that one is nice to grow up with. It's harder to learn as an adult, I can attest. Um, but I grew up watching my mother teach people how, like, not just lessons, but like a physical movement that was an expression of themselves. And that was just so inspiring. That. Yes. Mm-hmm. I've had some friends point to, I always, I always joke that I'm like, um, out of a family of artists, I came out this punk athlete, like my poor mother, but I had some, um, friends who are artists they are like, well, climbing and skiing are kind of like movement arts, right? That really, that really struck me when, when someone said that for the first time, I was like, oh, <laughs> that got under there somewhere. And I think watching my, my mother's just a really inspiring character and managed to follow something that was so, so, so deeply important to her. She managed to make a career out of it and share it with others and create an incredible amount of financial stability as a single mom that was a, a violinist because she just stayed really smart and conservative and yeah i mean so, in the music industry is another hard one right yeah totally she gave me a book that actually is sitting right here next to me called right here it's called the inner game of oh, tennis I, I read that book it's, uh, it's, it's, read it. it's yeah. it, it is amazing so when she was auditioning for like big symphonies when she was you know in her well, 20s I guess um, that book was going around the music scene because of how it, um, and now I've been reading it because the next chapter coming all in all kinds of directions. My next chapter has been bringing um, coaching, uh, personal training into the fold. And so it's, it was amazing when my mom was moving out, she recently moved to Italy. Um, our heritage is Italian and she cleaning her house out, found that book. And she was like, Hey, I think you might like this. <laughs> I was just like, yep, of course. Thanks, mom. 
<laughs> again. <laughs> nice. So you witnessed like since his childhood that like your mom nurtures students, uh, has his way of teaching. Did you feel that you, you are inspired? So you bring that into your say guiding work. Yeah, something I think about a lot, and the guides that I've seen through the years who have stuck with it, and those that kind of maybe get really frustrated, and then those who go away. There's lots in all of the molds. You know, there's lots of reasons that you might not persist. But one of the things that's jumped out to me as an important component to longevity as a guide is connecting to the clients. Because it, we're all going to go through these peaks and valleys with our own abilities. And I think it's hard if you get into climbing thinking that you're going to be a professional climber because you're not always climbing for yourself. And that can take a toll. You're often there. And it certainly has on me. Right? Like I, I do a lot of self-care to stay strong and balanced with the amount that I'm climbing for other. I'm, I'm climbing for someone else's goals, for someone else's um, success or experience a lot of the time and separate from the mountains, separate from climbing, separate from skiing, separate from all of that. It brings me great satisfaction to be with people on their journeys. And so that's where I think I've found the sustainability and inspiration with guiding more long-term. So, um, then let's come back to this longevity topic because mm -hmm. I think the, well I talked to a bunch of different guys and then some maybe could be really excited about it and then could burn out pretty soon right so um oh, so right. you mentioned about the self-care right and then you're also talking about the connection with the clients so did you like consciously think about that like do you have a plan so just like okay you know I'm like mm -hmm. committed to this job which is guide that so, well, um, how to say that whether you feel like it's going to be your lifelong career, right? But it's at this point, it seems like you want to, you're still pretty serious about it. So I want to push you as far as you can. What's your strategy? Right? You mentioned about longevity. Yeah. So, this is a great question. Yeah, another great question and more details in there. Um, definitely, definitely not. <laughs> I had like a chronic injury that almost ended my Ooh. guiding. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I hit 30 and like everything, everything fell apart. I came back from my second Denali expedition and had accumulated. I'd had a, like wore a backpack that was too small, probably for the year prior, because it's what I could get my hands on. Classic, just like silly late 20s decisions. And I was like, no, I'm tough enough. I'm strong enough. And not necessarily doing other any anything else other than the mountain sports and the guiding, you know, for my own body at that time. And I got the smackdown big time. I had so much compression in my like upper back Oops. and the, like the base of my neck that I was getting shooting pains down my left arm and I had to quit halfway through the guiding season. <laughs> yeah, it was scary. I'm not not to I just having shooting pain and not knowing if that's ever going to stop. Obviously, that's scary enough. But then also that throws my whole my work world into question. And even beyond that, my identity. And that that's jarring. You know, I'd built up so much of already my most of my adult life on this one thing, this guiding and this mountain thing. So um, that 
I was going to the Antarctic program in the winters at that time. So that was fortunate because it gave me easier work and regular work through what was had been previously my slowest season. Um, and and then building up the avalanche education as well. So I was able to like just start to figure out the things that weren't going to break me as badly. <laughs> But in that, to get out of pain, went through, went on just like a blitz of all body work. I went to acupuncture, uh, massage therapy, physical therapy, saw a neck specialist and got out of shooting pains. And literally, like there was so much compression in my spine that I couldn't turn Ooh. left. All right. <laughs> yeah. Like it would like my vertebrae would just be like, nope. Like, oh. All right. And that was after I was mostly out of pain. That was not shooting pain time anymore. That was like, right. Okay. I need to turn left. <laughs> so the next specialist worked with that one for a while longer. And I remember getting to towards the end of what, what I was like allowed in terms of health insurance. And I got to this, I would self-report how much better I felt. And I got to like 85% of normal. And the specialist was like, great, well, that's, um, we're out of sessions and that's within the realm of what, you know, we expect. So that's great. Good luck. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. So did I tell you I work as a mountain guide? Right, I need like 100 percent is not going to cut it, huh? No, no, even arguably I need more than 100%. Um, so that that launched me on my own like if i wanted my career back i had to figure out how to make myself durable enough for it and that launched me on a lot of study i went to um more found more um a, a physical therapist that actually strangely now is one of my best friends in the world <laughs> um i showed up in her office she was um God, how did she come to me? She was in, in my local community, was just like this remarkable human. She'd worked um, at Harborview for a long time, which is a really high-end medical facility in Seattle, and then had her own thriving practice that like, good luck getting in to see her. Um, but I emailed her my story and she was just like, come on in, I'll make time for you. And I remember like sitting on her on her table or lying on her table and she took one look at me and she was like, you haven't reached your athletic potential yet. That's nice to hear, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And I reminded now to the now that she's like one of my closest friends. I remind her of it regularly because that was like you couldn't. I yeah, the the anxiety that just melted out of me from that and realizing, oh yeah, oh my God, so happy. Body for you. can heal, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was so grateful for her. <laughs> And so it was still a journey. There was a lot. And even still, those things are things that I manage, um, but learned a lot about them. And and in my case, learned that I really had to be my own best advocate. And put together, I started taking some courses that were that I could find in these disciplines where I learned about movement and strength training, because as I got out of physical therapy and out of pain, there still wasn't a roadmap for me forward and back into performance. So that was where I started to try to like figure things out. And I went through a bunch of, um, I trained with the Postural Restoration Institute and I learned how to improve my breathing mechanics and match that with my strength training in a way that 
locked my posture in so that I wouldn't injure myself in the same ways anymore. And then that was this, this is maybe the, what is this chapter number three, I suppose, of, of guiding already um, in eventually becoming my, my other career of coaching uh, mountain athletes. Oh yeah. And that because of the work I had to do to rebuild my body and be durable enough for the things I love to do. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I <laughs> admire you. I mean, this story is, uh, it's really oh, intense. You. I mean, I know that you, you <laughs> talk about the story that in, in the very calm and smile and just like, it seems like everything's <laughs> in the past, but it's just kind of like, imagine that starting from this backpack that didn't fit you. Right. It's so, so, something Precisely. sound like so small, but then have mm -hmm. this long lasting effect. Mm -hmm. And then if you somehow lost in any point during your recovery, then, then mm -hmm. you won't be you here now. So I stay. Yeah. yeah. So I really mm -hmm. admire that you like stuck <laughs> with it. And I mean, it's definitely hard to say. I mean, I guess even you ask yourself how to say that whether you just rather well never had that process or experience. I mean, even though you are arriving in this phase three that uh, establish you, you learn a lot, establish your other career choice. Right. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm not, I'm, I'm definitely not going to ask you a question whether you wish that it never happened because it already happened. <laughs> right. I mean, right. Yeah. yeah that would be impossible mm -hmm. to say. Then, oh, so I... that probably the whole thing, how long did it take? Like how was, yeah, all of that, gosh, I mean, years and there were more layers to it there. I got to a point where I was out of pain and then, um, learned about more about nutrition and figured out in my thirties that I have celiac, which was surprising. Um, and, but once I did figure that out and it's rampant in Italian and Irish heritage, go figure, which is my heritage. Um, just a strange genetic anomaly, something like one in five Italians. When I go visit my mother in Italy, for example, I just show up at a restaurant I'm like, Hey, I have celiac. And they're like, Cool, we gotcha. <laughs> And my plate comes with a sticker on it that says approved for okay. celiac. And I'm like, wow, they have a minister of food in Italy. You get a reimbursement if you have. Anyway, I digress. But that was a big, bit of a wild card for sure. I have since heard that sometimes for women, autoimmune disorders flare or or turn up in our 30s. So it could be you also lose some of the like elasticity of your tissues in your 30s, right. you know, like aging yeah. happens. That's a real thing. So um, it didn't, a lot of that work really didn't stick as well as I would have liked it to until I figured that out. And that was probably three or four years later. So I, I, the injury struck right at 30, like clockwork. And then it was probably until a year, it was six months of a fair amount of pain. And in that year, I was back to guiding. Um, well, what was I? I think I was mostly fragging, limited guiding for the next year, just kind of 
is that true? No, 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 no. I was back to it, but not Denali expeditions. I ditched those. And so I shifted as much of my work to be educational for the winter, which which worked with avalanche education. And then the spring, I forget what I was doing in the spring. um, But I think still taking time off, mostly being a little more seasonal and younger and traveling and living in my car for those seasons. So just kind of chilling out getting my own climbing back, learning about the movement, really restoring, honestly, relearning a lot of movement patterns as well and retraining things and then reestablishing like core strength and then learning how to use it. Um, But in that, so it lingered and I I would say it was still hard for a couple of years. Um, And then really those gains started to take off when I was like 33, 34 and things started to, I started experiencing these like, oh, wow, that connected. I remember feeling this like incredible relaxation in my neck for the first time um, years later. And yeah. So um, this, I mean, what what do you think your incredible resilience came from? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> There's a, well, that's a hell of a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> I was just like, I want to steal sound like a secret. I'm not not saying that I want to. <laughs> I wanted to go through the things that you went through, but just saying, as long as I have maybe like half or thirty percent of your resilience, maybe it'll help me as I push through some stuff. Oh my gosh! Oh, I don't know. I think you might have stumped <laughs> me. Um, no, I I do have an answer. I think I think it was that. It was all of it going through all of that and realizing that that I could get better and more there was the more I dug the more relief I found and so those things then included some some harder things some of that was addressing mental health and as I got on in in like the acute phase of my body I went through a lot of, you know, just really straightforward body work. And that was like a safe entry into like our bodies are really, they express a lot of our life, a lot of our stress. They hold a lot of our stress. So as I like released the body stress that, that made other layers more accessible. And some of those, then I started, I did some art therapy early on, which was really cool having a family of artists and I always noticed, like, we, I would basically draw something and then reflect on it. And that was really cool. And then coming back to that that best friend who um, was my phys- that first physical therapist that started to really, it was like, oh, you're, like, your athletic, athleticism is not, is not over, don't worry. Um, her kid actually had um, an interesting experience and pointed me towards this EMDR and EMDR was for like when you if you're having like a strong reaction to needles, for example, which was her kid was having like needed to get these shots, but was having this really strong reaction and had this this EMDR thing was really constructive in basically like removing this trauma that's having a non-constructive result. And so that I, I name it because in the guiding world, it has become more and more known as we exist in a community of people who experience them at times in our career at some point, very serious trauma. Um, so it comes from it's an eye movement therapy that you don't have to like talk about your stuff or anything, but it 
finds the ways that certain like emotions or memories or patterns or things are lodged in our bodies and um, was developed by a woman and then has been used in in um for soldiers coming back from war so there's an extreme side of it thing side of it but there's also just these really like benign things like oh like hmm, i can't get a shot because like this is freaking me out and i don't know why and that can completely resolve it so it's really cool in my case what came out as i was coming out of injury and wanting to get back into sport and i had my friend my friend's voice in my head saying like you haven't reached your potential yet and i was like yes this is that feels so true and I realized specifically as an adult learner skier that I would have the voice of my high school track coach in my head when I was on top of something steep and scary for me on skis. And it would make me really tense and anxious because I had I, I gave up track and field in my junior year of high school because it was too much pressure. And I was fairly competitive and looking at scholarships and the coach was putting a lot of pressure on me. And it wasn't fun anymore. So I dropped it entirely and joined the swim team because I thought to be a marine biologist, you got to be able to do a flip <laughs> turn or a kick turn in the pool. That made much more sense. So, and I wanted to surf. I was just like, no, movement needs to be fun. It has to be fun because that's what feels good. And then it was, I just, I cracked, I cracked under pressure and I just, I was just like, I'm out. But his voice was coming back when I was skiing in my 30s. And so when I heard about this therapy, I was like, huh, that could probably help. And then that was a layer. There were many surprising things that I found just these points of tension where I held tension in my body for no apparent reason um, that would dissolve. So that was a striking, like I'd come into this growth period with as such a physical person and I I interact you know like in my family I I interact I feel like I am an artist like the rest of my family but my art is is like physical movement and so like my and, and experience with the world is strongest through that physical lens and that was a way that brought brought me into an emotional healing through a very calm but a, a very physical process as well it didn't I have didn't have to talk about it. I didn't have to like figure anything out even it could just like move these things through me that were stuck wow we start all this conversation with that I asked you about the self-care and then I didn't realize I would heard this story that <laughs> was this very intense uh so I mean, I guess you were mentioning that back then you were like late 20s, probably like we when we were like young, we always thought that we were invincible. And uh, mm -hmm. so now after all these years, what would you say to maybe like the younger guys about like self-care? Yeah, I, well, do it <laughs> before you need it. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And actually, I was just on the phone with one of my friends who is in his 30s and having a lot of wrist pain. And he's getting the feedback from his body. It's it's moving around. It's he was had an elbow problem last like last year. He had some shoulder pain at some point and it's moving around. So I would say the moment you start to notice that you've got these things and you're they're just like chasing them around start getting towards start finding the root of it because there's always and that's the stuff i've gotten into with my coaching 
in working with people coming out of um, similar to what I experienced, like coming out of physical therapy, coming out of pain, needing re movement re-education into becoming a healthier athlete for the rest of their lives. And in order to do that, it can take hopefully not the amount of work it took for me, but if you catch it soon and you catch it before it's shooting pains, you catch it before it shuts you down, it's really doesn't have to be scary. It can be quite straightforward. It does take time and it takes help. And so I think what I wish I had perhaps done differently was known that that was an important thing and started investing in it sooner and just making it a normal part of life where a lot of the care we need is not going to be covered by health insurance, even if you have good insurance as a guide, which is <laughs> unusual. Um, but but saving a couple hundred bucks per month and really just just budgeting that in, I think, is one of the wisest things that a guide can do for their career. It's like investing yourself. Yeah. So then then yes. let's talk about a little bit about your coaching business. So because all those experience and then you had to, you you were forced to learn because you, you want to mm -hmm. <laughs> get back and try to strive for your athletic potential that I believe exactly. you probably haven't reached yet. And <laughs> <Stop>. <laughs> yeah, so when did you start? How long ago did you start officially launch your coaching business? Is that the Movementum? Yes. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I filed that company in like 2016. And as, as has been kind of the theme of things in my life that like I put it in place because I was starting to coach in needing to buffer out my, you know, like in feeling vulnerable and coming out of injury around that time. I filed this company. It worked really well, worked better for me to handle my taxes with the local itty-bitty bouldering wall that I started teaching climbing classes at where I was living on Vashon Island in Washington at the time. And um, so that was 2016. And I was still, I was studying for this, um, to be a certified strength and conditioning specialist, which is kind of like a personal trainer, but you do have to have a four-year degree and you're held accountable to continuing education that's rooted in science. And so that appealed to me with the science background. So I was like, oh, that's the one I want. And that's the one that you would see like, hmm, if I wanted, I also had a strong background in track and field and soccer. And I was like, if all these things don't work out for me, maybe there's something there to fall back on. And that was always the acronym you would see behind the, the trainers that worked with NCAA teams and things like that. So I was like, okay, I'm going to study for this. And it was really hard. <laughs> it was like, it was all kinds of like memorization for formulas and pathways and things that I was just like, oh my gosh, it was like the hardest thing I had done since, certainly since college. So it's, it's and like a, a totally different four-year degree kind of thing. Like, like sports I mean, kind and... of. Okay. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks that did study exercise science are basically set up for the exam. And I studied biology, but not exercise science specifically. So it was, it was burly. It was hard. <laughs> and it's hard to study when you're a guide and you're in the field mm -hmm. all the time and you're, you know, tired on your days off and you're an adult and you got all these things going on. Um, so it took a really long time. And then finally, I just in, uh, what year was it? Um, must have been 
I forget. I think it was 2017, but I finally just got like, okay, I'm just, I have a mellow fall. I'm going to take most, most of September. I booked the exam and I just studied my tail off for about a month and managed to pass it. It was again, I was not sure it felt super hard and then did perfectly fine on it and passed. And, um, continued picking up clients here and there and just working through um, this really cool facility that I had access to. And with my company, I was just noodling along and I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, this will be nice when I want to retire from guiding and just kept it on the side. And it was a nice little extra bit of cash here and there. And easy. So, for example, who will be your target client? I was entirely on Vashon Island where I was living. And so it was a lot of a lot of mountain athletes who wanted to be able to get strong and fit, but we all lived on this island. And so unless you, you know, you worked as a guide and you were in the field all the time like I was, you didn't necessarily get a lot of mountain time. So um I was working with a lot of folks like that. And then some that were just really curious about a different way to be active and wanted to learn good technique at the climbing gym to climb on the wall there. Um and then kids, kids groups, I was coaching a little climbing kids team for a little while. That was really fun. Across the water down in Tacoma, I worked also for um, Tacoma Edgeworks, yeah. which is a climbing gym and also a guide service that I worked for part-time as well. And just loved their model. It was like a gym to crag kind of model and a very holistic um, way of guiding, which I liked. Um, so I just kept those around and then pandemic hit. <laughs> which is the other that was chapter four um when pandemic hit i fortunately had worked for for edgeworks a lot that winter they nailed the paycheck protection and so i functionally had had um unemployment i couldn't even think of the word because it's not really a thing in in guiding you really don't often get much in the way of unemployment benefits and the ways that work is structured and seasonal makes it hard but that Paycheck Protection Act or whatever it was um, allowed me to have a reasonable income while we were all in quarantine. And then I was like bored <laughs> or, or like not not willing to get bored. Um, and I was like, huh. So that retirement plan for coaching, I bet I could make some headway and get set up. And so I just started experimenting with it. Had some friends that I I'd launched a whole like business platform did all the like boring stuff behind it with like, you know, website with um, branded emails with, and then started shooting a bunch of videos that were instructional along the lines of the things I had already studied to get myself out of pain. And then that I'd started sharing with my clients and collected over the course of the quarantine, something like a hundred videos wow. learned the back end of the apps that I could then share with, or interface with clients and then just started like taking on people part remote here and there and, and just still keeping it on the side. And if I talked about it with clients, I would pick up a client here or there. Um, and then it's kind of just been on a slow growth model somewhat organically like that since. Well, this year is, well, this year is almost done. So if you use this year's as example, so what would you say your your time split like say how many days you in the, in the mm. field guiding what kind of terrain or how many days you are probably 
in say Leavenworth in your home to do that and mm -hmm. use that educational. Yeah. Oh, that's a great, this 2023, which I would will say is unrepeatable. I'd worked way too much. Um, and then had two AMGA programs as well, but my, I'm now on a really neat salaried position with Alpine Ascents International and super unique. They've managed to figure out, um, being one of the larger companies, how to, um, provide really fair as regular work as kind of exists and almost year round, which is remarkable. And then I'm local. I live, I live locally. So I work full-time for them and my, I'm contracted to minimum of like a hundred, 110 days per year, or at least in 2023. And then there's other tasks that I might help with and trainings and webinars and so things like that. that. Part of the so, requirement for being a salary employee. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So minimum that I'm in the field is over a hundred days per year. Then with the area instructor work, that's educational and that's probably about 20 days of a year and field-based, um, not strenuous, but still a lot of, and more somewhat local for me now, which is great. And then the coaching, I fit in the gaps and that's harder to quantify because it'll be like, our phone calls mostly remote um at the start of the day and then i'm able to like spend the rest of the day skiing or i come back and like have a couple calls in the evenings um so it's the actual like i guess it gets to like the number of days off that i have feel kind of minimal but that has allowed me to have a lot of my daytimes back to myself in order to get back to my own strength training back to my own personal rock climbing goals, my, my like ski objectives and things like that, which has been awesome. I see. So you kind of so far for this year, well, you said that you work a little bit too much, but basically you, you like that type of split. Just like, okay. I do. And I, mm -hmm. oh, I know yeah. that you're still serious about, uh, guiding and you are like one step away from getting your pin, which is IFMGA mm -hmm. guide. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yep. um, right. So what's your outlook for that? Like why, what's the, uh, uh, why do you want to do that? And then after you gain, say your ski, uh, pass your ski guide and mm -hmm. do, do you, and, yeah, then what? yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. Well, so it lodged into my head almost like almost 20 years ago as like a really cool thing. And then obviously has been quite a journey to get there with a lot of tangents and injuries and scares and things along the way. Um, I realized just somewhat recently, it was serving me every step of the way to continue that education in terms of the scope that it opened me up to for mentoring and training my colleagues, or even just the terrain that I was ex uh, interested in guiding. So that was the big push. And then I got to a point where I was like, whoa, I'm really close, actually. And oh, yeah, this has been like an almost 20 year long dream that I've been like kind of noodling away at, but it's expensive, it's hard, it feels vulnerable. Um, so I've had to slow down and I've had to do it at times that like, I could financially handle it, you know, like there's significant investments. So coming up on this last one, there's, a, there's this, you probably know this classic joke in the industry that like so many guides get their pen and then they quit guiding. <laughs> and you're just like, but because it can be a journey and it's just, and it's, it can take a toll. 
Um, and that's fine. I, also, you know, like it can be a chapter like that and you reach that and you go through a lot of really great training to get there. Um, in terms of what the certification actually opens to me at this point, it's not it's not as much about that, though, with my mother living in Italy, that mm. is an interesting component. And I don't think I'm that interested in working a lot overseas. There's a lot of the terrain over there can be even more hazardous and then there's a lot more people in it. And I'm not sure that's really what I'm seeking. But with my coaching as well, I'm really excited to find a balance where with that high degree of certification as a guide, I can open up my access so that I can offer precisely what programming I want throughout the world potentially and and connect that with my with continue to connect that with um, the clients I'm coaching. Um, yeah. yeah. And just just have to connect the dots nice. essentially because you kind of have this whole picture right so if you say you must have a long-term relationship with probably have with quite many of your clients right so yeah totally. and then mm -hmm. could be like so from the coaching and they have field days then you can kind of build like a, this very complete program mm -hmm. for this particular person Absolutely. yeah i think that's really neat yeah uh, it's been rewarding. It's like the same reason that I love guiding. It just like goes a little back in time or it reaches uh, more components of a client's life and supporting mm -hmm. them on the Definitely. journey. I think that for me, it's one of the most rewarding is to see them grow, right? So trying to mm -hmm. um, just like you, you invest in yourself and trying to figure out how you can do something to help you. And it's a very long and complex journey. And then you use this expertise to help other people. I think that's pretty cool. And then not just about a single objective or single summit. Absolutely. It's been so inspiring. And that like, it's, I, I try to stay pretty picky about the clients that I take on in part because I will stay with, they'll stay with me for a year often, which is amazing. And we get to know each other really well. And I get to see them through multiple objectives. And it is, it is, it really fills my cup to see them just like flourish and thrive. And like, and those things do take a long time. Um, but it, for the exact same reason as I've loved guiding and seeing people on those journey, it's just added even more. And I have a, a question about the mentorship component. So you went through, so you mentioned during your college, was that the Outback program? Outback okay. Adventures, so it was called. It seems yeah. that they have some model that built in. So every year, so there will be senior uh, instructors, they will coach or junior instructors. So there's like kind of have the mentorship built in, right? So I, I talk to a lot of people mm -hmm. totally. when they come from, say, our bond or nose background. It seems like they really enjoy that. But somehow, um, say with people who probably just say not especially nowadays a lot of people start just getting their cert and then started to working things like this mentorship component is very hard to find so what do you think once you start to be a more guy like do you still have a lot of mentorship opportunities or you feel like you have to seek them out oh like in my position uh, now yeah yeah, like I, uh, I mean, I think if I'm getting your question right, the um, I've absolutely felt as I've gone on in time that I've still needed mentorship, and that it's gotten harder for sure to get. Um, that's that's a very frustrating phenomenon, and it's great. Like I love 
being able to turn the other way and mentor people because you do get um like there's a it's very reciprocal anytime you are a mentee or a mentor you get a lot out of it um the i have really appreciated working for alpine ascents being a larger company and that my direct oversight is an ifmj guide who really values uh, or understands what what it's like to guide what you need what what's hard and then listens to his guides really well and then the guide manager as well who has been around with them for like 10 years and has gotten to know guiding so well and is a woman of color herself and so just holds so many life experiences and um empathy and worldviews and things and then their support as a team has been remarkable in helping me navigate that we're like hey i still need help and i still want to have mentorship i don't want to be locked in this role where i'm now on the older end of things with more experience but i'm still like yeah like stuck in between um does that answer kind of what i think there were a couple yeah, questions so you i'm just kind of curious because i found that um unless you work for a big uh guy yes. service then they probably have some sort of structure say okay um or maybe not even a structure but they would encourage senior guys to mentor mm -hmm. and potentially they could pay senior guys to mentor junior guys right. but somehow then there's exactly. also a medium size or small size guy service and once you become a guy then you probably just like work alone you have to figure things out on your own yeah yes. so i should wonder whether that's a similar experience that you have yeah, absolutely. That that was in that previous chapter, where I was at a slightly smaller guide service doing a lot of low ratio, high end technical work. And I, kind of my answer to that was like, oh, gosh, I can't do this. I have to go somewhere else that I have. Two, it was two things. It was mentorship, but it was also collaboration and um, and a team in the field, because I, I experienced just a lot a lot of stress reduction when I had a colleague with me in the field. And that for me boosted my feeling of sustainability as a guide where I could like, you know, even on technical objectives, like we will often have two teams on the mountain, for example, for the North Ridge of Baker or Colsham. And that's great because that can feel, you can feel really exposed on objectives like that. Um, but more to your question that like, yeah, that I think that is a glaring hole and a hard one in some, um, I think the, like the AMGA has some resources that can help that and build in community and certainly is more able to support an independent guide model, which is harder. And that's not the model that I've really chosen. So I'm not the best to speak to it. Um, but I think it's a really important one to promote and to support and organizationally that's a an obvious one for it um the education track is part of that and i always hoped in i serve on the on the board um, for the amga and i've always hoped to see more right now there's a lot more like central focused work that needs to happen but as things bounce back and things are, are already going really well again for the amga and i would love to see that all grow into more of an education focus. 
And I think that would start to get more to what you're talking about, where um, in being more structurally focused on the education of guides in the United States, part of that component is and has to be mentorship. And the access to mentorship can be, you know, like I made a big career choice. I chose, I always worked for little small companies. I own my own small company. Like that's, I watched my mother run her own small company. Now I work for like the biggest company, like probably one of the biggest guiding companies maybe in the world. Like it's huge and has a really good feel. And it, that was a choice that I made because it, it connected the things that I needed. And so you mentioned that, so you are still on the board, right? So this is your second term, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah last year, my second term I coming see. up. And so when you decide to run for that, what was your initiative? I got a phone call asking me to uh, run. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you There's just said yes. The board. <laughs> I did. Yeah. It was like a bunch of old white men essentially no and middle-aged white <laughs> men and younger white men um is that even right there were i don't think at the time for a little there was a little while i was the only woman on the board um but literally they just called me and um somewhere some somewhere in the community someone had said like hey we think lyra would be helpful and boards will often do that it's um it's not that weird and they and we and still the board still does that you know you reach out you within your community as broadly as you can to seek the voices that you need to steer the board and to steer the organization. And so I was that one of those, I got a phone call and I remember just being like, well, that's terrifying and intimidating. And yet it was also like someone on the other end of the phone with this all mostly white male organization asking me to sit at the table with them. And I was like, well, there's, can't say no to that. So, um, and it was great. It was, it's been interesting and challenging at times. Um, and the progress and the change and the support and the collaboration, while all of the, those things can be very hard, has really been impressive in the five years that I've been there. So were you helpful to them in a way they expect you to, or you actually add some other flavor, you think? Ooh, you know, I think a lot about this is kind of a kind of an answer to what you're asking. I think a lot about call out culture and call in culture. And I really value the voices that are strong and clear and direct and powerful that will call things out when they're wrong and inappropriate. And we really need those. My personality is not that <laughs> I'm a very slow thinker and um, however, my strength is more in um, nuanced, delicate, sensitive conversations because I'm very sensitive myself. And in, in that role, I was able to kind of be the flip side to that. And so when we went through a lot of things that were calling out really big things, I, I could sit with those hard questions and people that were struggling with them and and have hard conversations and not feel, you know, related also to all the work I'd been doing with my body and, and just like coping mechanisms and things. I could sit with those really hard conversations in a way that was new and, and better and valuable and just kind of stick it out. And sometimes we wouldn't necessarily get anywhere and 
other times we would and and that progress just has to be slow um so yeah if that does that answer that question so for example what were maybe one of the difficult hard questions that you had to discuss with people some of the the a lot of the growth that the organization has gone through in the years I've served on the board have been you know pandemic Black Lives Matter, um, and some just some really big cultural things. The organization chose to take on diver- diversity, equity, and inclusion in a big and a real way at a pivotal time when that work was suddenly in a limelight, and also where that work was like. There was a lot of pressure to be really visible and to be doing it. And in reality, the most effective way is to like, I think, is to be affecting change in the places that aren't glamorous or visible. And there was catch up to in a lot of organizations. I think a lot of white led organizations, especially in outdoor spaces, there's just a lot of catch up to do. And there remains a lot of catch up to do. Um, so some of those were were just some interpersonal like just chatting because a lot of board work can be just like talking making the relationships that you have and collaborating and sharing ideas and um some of those hard hard conversations were just in helping to translate what was going on for the generation that was had been in in charge and it was like Oh, this is like fully support in spirit. And also it's hard and it's in new and it's a realm of things that maybe uh, a lot of folks hadn't had to face the realities of. So that, w- that would be part of it then on the social side of it. But then on the structural side, there have been other things that were like not in my realm of expertise by any means, like simple things like board structures or um, communication, lines of communication, and just cleaning things up structurally. And those were and have been like surprisingly challenging to change at times. And I think the big thing that's that has shifted recently is just in um, a big move to make the board smaller so that there's a lot more accountability and we can move more um efficiently and make make good positive changes but also make imperfect changes and know that like okay we're gonna do this thing because most of us think this is a good idea and if it doesn't work we can change it like we can go back to this we can learn but we're so much more light on our feet in that way Um, so that's been exciting and it's the super i remember in that first phone call it was the chair of the governance committee that was like you know i was asking like what i should get into he's like this might sound crazy, but like the most exciting work is actually in governance. (laughs) And it was just the structures of the things and that stuck with me. And and he was absolutely right. Yeah. So then is this gonna be so the second time will be the last term? Is that right? This year will be the end. Yeah. And and what Mm -hmm, what would you say your um, biggest contribution to the board then? Oh gosh. Something you put out of that one makes me self-conscious. <laughs> oh, oh. I don't know. It is it feels like a team for sure. It feels like a big team effort. I have 
felt um, really valued in my time on the board. And I think that I've really appreciated that because I think I tend to have a softer voice and there have been times that I've spoken up and I've said some kind of hard things and I've really felt listened to. Um, so, and I think they are those things that for me, having grown up in a city with a single mom and coming into a world that in, even though I'm white, there is a lot I experience in within my whiteness, sometimes less privilege when I'm in a white community. And that can be at times just perception, you know, and, and things. It's so complex how, how all of our social dynamics work. Um, but I exist, for example, around a lot of people that grew up skiing. And I come from like, like that was economically way out of the question for me growing up. Um, so that would describe some of where, like in my experience as a white person, where, where I sit. Um, and so it has for me been really, as I've spoken up a little more to like voice these other experiences, I've, um, had a lot of gratitude and a lot of, uh, appreciation and have in turn, that has in turn reminded me of like, oh yeah, these, there are some things I've been closer to throughout my life that that others haven't and just sharing that has helped to bridge an understanding that I think previously when delivered like had been conflict for them in their the rest of their world and like a, a block in interacting with someone who was that different but because I'm sitting there as another white person I think that that was for me really meaningful um made it feel important and and I think on that and the other part of all of that, I think the other really important thing I've felt has been to the, be the voice of, of the students on the board and really trying because I've still been in not being on the board. I've always been still going through mountain guide programs. And I think that's an exceedingly important uh, role or person to have serving on the board. A lot of educational organizations have a similar structure where they have like a student representative that voices the students to the board. And so that I think I learned was really important to have direct access to like, what do students experience? What do we hear? And that's something that I hope they retain after I term off I next see. year. And then serving on the board is mostly like volunteer, right? So, uh, so what mm -hmm. do you think, uh, how much time commitment or effort commitment that how to count, huh? <laughs> Hard. Yeah, totally. And I think very um, variable. And I would say, I think probably changing because we did just shrink the size of the board. And so I think there will be more time commitment. Um, but it also is, I think, a lot more fun and we affect change in more ways. Whereas before you'd be on a meeting and you'd just be like, kind of like not really knowing what, what was going to come of any of it or what you were really doing or what your contribution was. So um I wouldn't call it a part-time job. I think that's unfair. I think for some, um, for some people like the board chair, definitely, definitely a part-time job. Um, and then I think it just depends how many committees you opt into. And then, so say, um, you say you initially received the phone call. They say, okay, Lira might be useful, helpful he here. Uh, do you know what was the intention they thought that you might be helpful is because to add some different 
difference to the board or diversity in the board? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. No, there's a, a funny answer for that one. So yeah, they, um, they definitely wanted to have a woman on the board. And I think th there was some of my people in my community that knew, that knew me. Um, and when I got on the board, I was instantly assigned to chair the brand new DEI committee. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I remember just being like, oh my goodness. Right. So they got one woman on the board and they're like, so we've got this new committee and you're going to chair it. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> I'm like zero skill. I don't know at all. And you don't have to be, you know, it's, it is that kind of work. It's important for everyone to be doing it and willing to and willing to learn. And I knew a lot about guiding. And and so that was. So yeah. like right now, but say it... <laughs> um, you might leave the board in another year, right? So if you somehow need to call somebody, say, hey, you know, uh, so if you have become the recruiter for the board, like what kind of quality yep. you think the board right now needs? Yeah, great. I love that question. Um, so one of the committees that I also serve on now is the nominations committee because we I was hoping we could take it beyond the like, so who, who, how did you, how do you decide to call that person on the phone? You know, uh, I was so grateful they did and they had a process at the time and it was, it's worth just continuing to build on that process. Um, so that, um, the, Board will and does now reach out much more specifically and has a really good handle on the balance of things, even down to, I forget what it is exactly, but like this many IFMGA guides, you know, like um, this many single discipline certified guides so that we have those voices as well as um, a bunch of appointed like financial uh, advice, which is awesome, who are also may also be guides. So there's, there is clear directive when nominations come up again, uh, the office communicates those. And then um, be out, offline, all of us who serve on the board have our networks as well. And I've been putting out to my community for um, a little while already, just getting the idea in the backs of some minds for some folks that I'm like, oh, this person, you know, you hear this person's at board meetings all the time already, or and this person is really vocal in this space, you know, just community leaders that that pop up already and so I've been just kind of like planting that that idea um where I can to get yeah just have people think about it because it is a commitment um but for now to answer your question more um I think things are moving to, moving forward in a fairly balanced way which is really cool and the last board meeting was really really fun to be part of with uh, a new collection of appointed board members from industries that I don't interact with as much, which is very cool. Um, and so when the next cycle comes around, I would, I would just say for folks to keep their, keep their eyes on their inboxes and um, watch for the, the calls for nominations and the specifics. I think the common one is probably that we'd never hear enough from is the single pitch instructor and community. That's a big one. Oh, interesting. Yeah, uh, I'll definitely when I teach SGI or uh, do the SPI assessment, I will let them know that maybe they'll be interested. Any some folks will be interested in that. And providers like yourself as well. <laughs> 
And uh, I know that uh, Lira, you wear a lot of hats, and then also this coming weekend, right? You're going to a Mountaineer Leadership Conference, and what was that conference about? Yeah, this conference, it's a really neat thing. It's to support. So the, the Mountaineers is a Seattle based nonprofit that um, it's like it's like a community. It's not a guide service. It's volunteers they, who lead yes, trips. They are famous. They have long history. Yeah. But they are famous. Yeah, long, long history, very long history. And a lot of people, that's how they get into climbing in the Northwest is they take these like basic climbing course, um, which can be it's about a year long and there's different modules. And so it's an amazing, amazing public access to climbing, you know, technique um, and know-how and expertise and mentorship, as we're talking about, for a great price, which guiding is not. Guiding is expensive. So I really appreciate the things that they do. And this leadership conference they have once a year. Um, I think they, they skipped during pandemic a little bit. But the leadership conference brings together uh, speakers from um, like Liz Riggs Meter is speaking from Airy. Um, I think about something along the lines of like the humans and high risk environments and education and reflecting on you know, like long term learning processes. She's the program director for the Avalanche Education, and a brilliant mind of around those things. And then I'm speaking on this one for training for mountaineering with the angle, what they asked me to do was knowing that I serve on the DEI committee at the AMGA, they were like, hey, can you speak on um, something in equity and inclusion? And I was like, can I talk about how training athletes, it's important to, to understand each athlete's personal experience? Um, because the biggest thing I remember guiding an older woman on the Easton Glacier, that I was able to just talk to her about for each move and get her to move a little bit better. And she did not bonk. She just like cruised right up that mountain. And it was like, she was at her max probably the whole time and did not waver. And I just remember, and she was probably 60 and had never climbed a mountain before. And I was just like, huh. And I was, I've been studying myself, the female physiology specifically in my, in the last year of my coaching there's been a lot like research is finally starting to grow a little bit. We went from like 4% of exercise science research done on women to 6% this year, Whoa, which cool. is cool. <laughs> yeah, great. It's like exponential growth. Um, <laughs> but that's getting better. But my favorite takeaway is, and the message that I, that I have for a lot of my colleagues as I'm bridging the coaching and the guiding world and that I want to share with that community is um, just always checking our bias and how we often assess our clients through a very classically male athletic bias, which is there's a lot of reasons for it. And um, these these things are should not have value attached to them, though they are, uh, or that they often do. But the, the male athlete classically, stereotypically, strength and power, bigger body size, larger heart and lungs for their body size. Even like if it was same same female body to male, you're going to have a larger heart and larger lungs in the male. And so the amount of force and power and all those things, you can't compete head to head for the same size body. However, there's lots of other ways to be an athlete. Endurance, extreme endurance is inc like the estrogen 
in the female physiology predisposes athletes to extreme endurance. And the more things that I'm reading about and learning about, you know, with all the like women uh, winning long foot races outright or swimming in particular, long distance swims, crazy records held by women. And um, there's a lot of like the uh, regularity and pacing that and the nervous system and um, regulation that allows women to show up consistently over extreme lengths of time and perform. And so what I've noticed with some of my colleagues guiding is that they will spin. That's our term for like turn a woman around um, who could absolutely have made it if they just took the pace back one notch and not, not even to a pace that's below standard, but just like, yeah, if that might just be a shorter stride length, it might just be like one notch slower and that those women are bonk proof and it's awesome. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, wow. I wish the the 6% research is going to go up to 8% and maybe 12%. <laughs> then we, me we will too. learn more incredible things about women athletes. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I, I would just say talking with you is so fun. And then we are already, wow, an hour and a half, uh, at least. Yeah. <laughs> so, your, your questions are wonderful. You're connecting all the dots. That's really thank nice. Thank you. And so I also want to, usually I like to ask this big question. So I say, if uh, listen and listen to this episode, and they can only take one thing away, what would you wish them take away? Hmm. Hmm. I think given like the audience I'm thinking of, like guides maybe to be or guides mid mid career or wherever, um, I think that it's really important to know that you're in the right place for yourself. That you're doing the right thing. You're in the right place. And how do they know? Oh, you have to believe. How do they know? <laughs> well, I think it's I could mm -hmm. maybe it's the thing that's there when everything else is scraped away. You know, it's the the what just feels unquestionable or unwavering or un non negotiable. And if guiding is that for you, then it is so worth it mm. to make everything else happen, to make all the details work. And there's a lot of ways to do that. Um because at the core, I find it to be, I think, one of the most gratifying things and also one of the most important, actually, if I'm totally honest, it seems like such a silly, like there's the the catchphrase, the conquerors of the useless. <laughs> yes. With, with all, uh -huh. Right. And it's, there's some truth to it. And yet at the same time, I think that guides can and do serve as stewards for the mountains and that those mountains need a voice and they're changing. Yeah. It's like a lot of guys work as front line. So like you see the, the, the climate change can definitely affect, could affect our likelihood. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's front, front, front row of you for sure. Whew. Wow. And so, 
Thank you, thank you so much for um doing this interview with you, uh, with me. Uh, I know that you probably very busy. Um, you. Oh, it was nice to <laughs> nice to chat. Thank you for reaching out. And yeah. So, uh, if people want to connect with you, say you know they're interested in your coaching, or they want to hire you when they go up to say Northwest, is that your um the main region that you work as a guide Northwest? Okay. It is. Yep. Yeah. Mostly local yeah. anymore. So, yeah. Uh, how should I find you? Easiest is probably my website, movementumtraining.com. Okay. M-O-B-E, Mentum. Yeah. All right. Training. So on that mm -hmm. website, you will have also the contact info. Then they can reach out for yep. you, to you. Yeah. That's great. And, you know, my family actually yeah. lives in Seattle area. So if some... <laughs> So sometimes I go up there. I live in Las Vegas, but I do go up there in summertime sometimes. Sometimes, maybe we could. Oh, you'll come and say yeah, hi. Yeah, we'll go time. Yeah, when I'm there, that would be great. Cool. Thank you so much for your time.